morning's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. You can find this on page 194 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided in the back, in the black chair pockets. Again, 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroen, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophna and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her arrival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was bitterly distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on your affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is God's word. Certain people won't uh, set foot in a church, a synagogue, or any place of worship. Uh, so many of these same people will long and do long for a spiritual connection. So what we've done is begun to uh, explore a series of vignettes or, or case studies from Scripture of real people with real struggles who reach out to God through prayer and in doing so teach us how we might do likewise. Last week we looked at a king named Josiah who in an unbelieving and biblically illiterate culture stumbled upon the Bible and used it as his prayer guide. And this morning's case study we have here is Hannah. And what I'd like to contend today is that Hannah's plea before God is a prayer for wisdom. And along the way, 
I'll contend something else. That through his wisdom, the first and greatest answer to prayer that God gives Hannah is not her having a child. It's not her having a child. Before we go any further with this case study here in 1 Samuel, we need to examine what is wisdom. What is wisdom? What are we really praying for when we pray this kind of common, popular prayer? And it is popular, right? Whenever a person is ill and there are doctors involved, what do we pray? God, please heal that person and grant the doctor's wisdom. When we're making an important life decision or we're going to go into a hard meeting or discussion with someone, what do we ask? God, please, Father, please grant me wisdom. Or if your children are at the age when they uh, start giving them a little more leash, right, give them a little more slack and make more independent choices as they get older, we start to get on our knees as parents and pray, God, please help them choose wisely. Grant them wisdom. All of which is encouraged by Jesus' brother, James, in James chapter 1, where James says this, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, what are we really asking for, though, when we ask for wisdom? Let me first explain what wisdom is not. Alright, wisdom is not always, not always, simply choosing between what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. What's sort of Jesus, obviously, and Satan? Many or most of our decisions in life, if we're honest, are sort of like that. But certainly not all. Some are more complex. Neither is wisdom understanding life from the control tower. Right? Some of us view sort of getting wisdom as levitating above the day-to-day minutia of life so that we can understand how all of life's intricacies work together and weave into this big pattern that we can see. In other words, depending on your taste in film, uh, you imagine wisdom personified in Gandalf, Yoda, or uh, Morgan Freeman. Right? This is this is wisdom, or it could also be Nelson Mandela. You can choose either way. Uh, but well, it's true, though, that while living wisely, you begin to often see God's hand weaving different purposes together. You start to see this. That doesn't always accompany wisdom. It's just bonus when it happens. But it's no guarantee that it will. We won't always be able to see the big picture in making a wise choice. So what is wisdom? The best clue? I read a number of definitions and, and, and looked at people much smarter and more wise than I and what they had to say. But the best clue we have is from what the Bible says about its primary characteristic. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. By fear, that's not necessarily a I'm going to run from God because I'm afraid of Him, but it's a reverence of God. It's an understanding that I'm a human being. God is perfect and holy. And so, man, I know that He could take me like that. He is bigger than me. 
He is perfection when I am not. You hear the Lord's man. When you see this throughout Proverbs, this idea of wisdom, this characteristic, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 15.33, other places. So as a result, we might define wisdom as choosing that which most reveres and honors God. So many of our decisions are based on earthly wisdom. What's better for me? What's better for my career? What's better for my reputation? For my comfort? And you get a little little more nobly. You say, what's what's best for my spouse? What's best for my family? Uh, What's more responsible? We're getting closer to what is true wisdom there. And true wisdom will often involve that. Usually involve that. But there are times that it doesn't. That fearing the Lord goes beyond even those things. Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. In other words, when we just trust ourselves, and we just keep saying, well, you know, I think this is right. This is the right thing to do. I think this, yeah, it's just... Friends, our, our mind always tends towards choosing what's comfortable, what's good for our reputation, what's good for us. There's a higher form of wisdom. We're going to talk about that this morning. As you'll see, Hannah's plea is for wisdom because the, the end result is that her life is one in which she reveres, she more honors God. The end result is a changed life. And as Jesus had a saying about this, that wisdom is proved right by her children. Kind of a strange saying in some ways, right? But what he's basically saying is the proof is in the pudding kind of idea. That if it's wise, you will see it in that person's life. In change. Becoming more like God, more like Christ. So let's look at this morning. We're going to look at what gives rise to Hannah's prayer for wisdom. And then how do we know that our prayer is answered? We're going to look at those two things. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. But it's crucial for understanding praying for wisdom. What that entails and how we might do likewise. So first, what gives rise to Hannah's prayer for wisdom? She has oppressing circumstances. She has oppressing circumstances, I should say. And then two really alluring, attractive choices. There are a lot of places that we read... I don't want to go back over them. The text really speaks for itself. A lot of places where Hannah's pain is unmasked. Right? It is transparent. Why? Why is this transparent pain? Well, Hannah is unable to bear children. Penina, who is described in verse 6 as her rival, described as a rival both because she has four children and because Penina used to, as it says in verse 6, provoke her grievously to irritate her. That word irritate in Hebrew is literally to thunder. So she provoked her in a way that caused her to thunder internally. But not only do you have Penina here making these sort of conspicuous jabs, but also those less conspicuous condescending smiles. You know what I'm talking about, right ladies? When that lady gives you that little like... Right, one of those? No doubt. I just, I just know. I just know that's going on here. She's provoking her. This is happening. 
Not only do you have this going down, but it's also family reunion time. Look with me in verse 3. It says this, Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where, his, where the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. These are part of his family. And scholars agree that basically what he's doing and doing this yearly is, is our equivalent of a family get-together, a family reunion. And you know that feeling, right? You may not be a vain person, but put yourself in Hannah's shoes. If, if, it's the, if there's one time you might die in an exercise, one time where you might get your stuff together, right, it's when you go to visit your family. Right? It could be a family wedding. It could be just a simple you know, vacation to the beach or to the grandma's house. But this is when you want to you know, your hairstyle, right? You, you, you pretend you have job prospects, right? These sorts of things happen. So imagine, so it's not only this woman just grating on her, grating on her. She has to endure the glances, the asides, right? They're talking about her. And she waltzes into Shiloh, childless. So childlessness is her pressing circumstance, which is made worse by having to show it to her in-laws. So what's Hannah to do? She has two equally alluring choices for what to do, what to pray next. She can ask God for a child. Straight up. Give me a sweet, cute baby. Gerber baby-like. Right? That's going to just blow away all these people here. These women. <laughs> Let me explain why this is so important for Hannah to have a child. In this culture and in this time in history. And I want to be very sensitive here because I know that virtually all of us know somebody who has wanted but struggled to have children. And that might even be you. Katie and I, have, we've walked through that with friends. And, and especially as a man, I, I can only begin to imagine the depth of emotional pain that's with them. But having, having said this, with, with all due respect, to, to understand Hannah's context, you must take that kind of pain and multiply it by, by five for her. In the ancient Near Eastern society, your family's economic status, your ability to produce wealth, was directly related to the wife's ability to produce children. Because all businesses were family businesses. Alright, that's why, how do we know Jesus was a carpenter? It doesn't actually say anything in the Bible about it. We know about it because he was son of Joseph, the carpenter. Right? Or really, adopted son. So it didn't matter if you were a carpenter, a, a baker, or a candlestick maker. If you had no children, you had no employees. That was basically the deal. There's no labor force. You didn't have kids. It was very, so it's a simple equation. Lots of kids produced wealth. Few or no kids, you were in poverty. You were poor. Also, since only four out of ten children made it to adulthood... There's no such thing as a pension, also. You could be destitute, literally starved to death as you get older, if you don't have children. 
All right, so if you have children, there's a good chance, there's a chance they might not make it to adulthood. If you don't have anything. When you're old, literally lead to starvation. One more thing. Think about this. Uh, if a nearby nation or tribe had a higher birth rate than yours, that meant they had more soldiers. Right? And more soldiers meant greater ability to do what? Conquer your people. Right? You were going down. So, women who birthed lots of children were, were heroes. They were national heroes. They, they, you were a patriot. A true patriot. You birthed lots of children. That, that's the context for someone like Hannah. So you see why Hannah might want to choose to pray for a child. How desperate that prayer is. Social status. Social national acceptance. Providing for family, but also feel good about herself. That's an attractive option. But there's a similarly attractive option that we might easily miss here. The singular affection and attention of her husband. Look with me in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5. Got to follow along with me. Break out a Bible if you haven't yet. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But notice this verse 5. But to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. She is clearly, this is why the author puts this in here. Otherwise it's out of place. She is clearly the, the apple of her husband's eye. Hannah is. The, these portions that the author talks about here are, are what's known as a peace offering. In which parts of the animal are given to the priest, right? To sacrifice. But then other parts are given to the people who brought the sacrifice to eat. All right, so basically it's like it's a restaurant and place of worship in the same place, which is a great idea, by the way, right? We should do that. Maybe anyone's got some extra capital? Let's make this into a restaurant slash church. All right, let's just bring back the Old Testament. We'll offer peace offerings. Bam, some of this to God. Let's eat. All right, that's a great idea. I like, I like how God is wise and gracious in these ways. But what that meant was, while at his family reunion. Elkanah, you know, when there's time to play football with his brothers and eat his mom's pie, instead, he's preparing a sumptuous dinner for just the two of them. Right? A romantic dinner, just he and Hannah. And it's a big dinner. It's luxurious. This is an alluring option. Right? Because... She's aware that should they have children, she may lose some or all of that warm affection and focused attention. Right? That's what Elkanah actually says. I have more to you than ten sons. This happens sometimes in marriage, right? We, you might get worried, like, if we have kids, will my husband feel the same about me? So she could pray for contentment and satisfaction with her husband's affection and his attention. That's also an alluring option. Do you see those two options then? But as with so many choices, idols lurk in the shadows. 
potential idols often lurk between the two typical choices of a decision. What do I mean by idols? Follow, follow me here. As Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, uh, is fond of saying, an idol is any good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. So it might be food, sport, comfort, uh, the feelings we get from relationships, all good things, but when we elevate them above God and satisfaction and hope in Him, they become ultimate things. Idols are anything about which we say, if I just had this, I just had this, my life would make sense. I would, I would be more satisfied. I would really have hope. Lurking behind the two typical choices for Hannah were potential idols. Represented by Peninnah on the one hand and her husband Elkanah on the other hand. Right? Having children, bearing fruit of the womb that, that Peninnah had, the, the affection, the love, the pedestal that her husband Elkanah gave. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have children. But perhaps for her, that has become an ultimate thing. The social economic status it would bring to have worth in others' eyes, as well as her own eyes, just to feel a sense of worth, seems wise. But really, those things, as we know, can rise so quickly to become ultimate things. Right? We like them, we want them, and quickly they shoot up and rise with the level of God our Creator. There's nothing wrong with wanting affection and attention from one's husband unless it becomes more ultimate than the affection and attention from one's true and forever bridegroom. When it becomes that, and to be honest about that in our hearts, that's an idol. So what does Hannah do? She prays for wisdom. What do I do? I don't want the scorn. I, you know, I don't... Want having to walk into this family reunion all the time and just in the downy, what do I pray for? Praise for wisdom. She prays for what would help her avoid indulging in an idol and instead what would help her most revere and honor and fear God. She literally chooses between two idols. Not the actual idols, but between them. What I call a third way. That's what God gives her. Look with me in verses 8 through 11. This is so cool. I love this. Okay, and her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you eat? Why is your heart sad? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Right? So here, she's confronted. Oh, man. He, like, he's drawing me in. Here we go. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. This is important. We're going to see Hannah rose again in this text later. It's a very important phrase. Anna, she recognizes now. She's going to do something about it. She recognizes choosing now might be a trap. And she just chooses after what Elkanah says to her. I love you. I care for you. It might be a trap. She chooses what to do now. So instead, she rises and she turns to God. Look at this. She rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and she prayed to the Lord. She wept bitterly. 
Then she vows a vow. And in that prayer, she, she's led to pray, O Lord of hosts, you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall touch his head. So first we see that God is pleased with this prayer, right? He gives her a son. But why is he pleased with this prayer? In praying for a son, she commits him to God to become what's called a Nazarite. It's basically a special vow which involves no haircuts, no shaving. All right, some of you are like, that's awesome. All right, some of you men are like, I love Wow, sign me up, right? Wait for the next part. No drinking. I'll believe that. And no going near dead bodies. All right, that one's agreeable for all. Now, this also meant that he was to become a lay priest. A lay priest, which meant he would be away pretty much all his life. From his family. So, do you see what Hannah has done by going to God for wisdom? Do you see what's happened? A Nazarite child is of no help to Hannah's family's economic situation. A Nazarite child can't help you in your old age. Right? He's not around. He's in ministry. A Nazarite child isn't going to give you the emotional support or go with you. Family reunions. Not going to be there. While that sounds depressing, the most important thing that's happened by pleading with God for wisdom is that he has helped her escape the allure of potential idols and helped her cling to him as her security and support. Do you see that? She has prayed for wisdom. God has given it to her in a creative manner so that... She has still prayed for a child, but in such a way that helps her avoid indulging in an idol. It's clung to him for her support, fearing him above all else. Do you see this? It's really remarkable. Really remarkable. This is the kind of third way God can give to us. Look at our own lives for a moment. Potential idols lurk behind the two opportunities, two types of of a typical decision, two choices of a typical decision. For instance, you have the opportunities that others may present you to serve, like in a ministry, or, or to maybe volunteer coach for a team, or to be part of fellowship. For some, it's just a choice between, you know, sort of laziness on the one hand and what honors God on the other, right? Just simple foolishness or wisdom. But for others, the opportunity that's presented to us, maybe doesn't fit your schedule. It might overload you with other, you know, you have other activities on your plate. Or the time doesn't work well with your family. It might be taxing on your family. So to choose that would be simply to satisfy others, to make them happy. Pleasing people becomes an ultimate thing. Right? It turns into an idol. You do it just to, let me just please this person. I want them be happy with me. But is the other alternative to not give of yourself or to have no practical community? Like, is that the other alternative? I'm just not going to do it. But really, isn't that kind of to, to indulge in the idol of comfort? Like, I just won't bother with things that are hard. Is there a third way? You know what I mean? Let me give you an example of a real-life thing that happened to me this week of how this third way might work. Uh, so we officially launched our outreach to Georgetown Primary 
this past week, and by all accounts, it has gone fantastic. I've been impressed by the organization of the program, especially by our own Terry Howard, who's done a fantastic job. Terry's here this morning. And also by the students' quick receptivity to us. All right, just, I've been around these things, these kind of things before, and usually it takes a while for kids to warm up to you. But no sooner had I walked into the tutoring room that a young man named Jalen was asking me for help with long division. He was just like, hey, man, can you please help me? And of course, he asked the wrong person. Which, you know, he didn't know. <laughs> anyway, the, the fact that the, the things are going so well, combined with an opening in our schedules, gave rise to the question, like, should we do something like have a Bible study with these kids? Right? I mean, a Bible study can't ever be a bad idea, right? Exposing kids to God's truth. It just took a minute. I was like, okay, you're, you're preaching on this one. Pray for wisdom. God, please give me wisdom with this. Help me. What would, what would you say? Is there a third way here? And what I sensed him saying was this, and I'll give you all the details of how I sensed him saying this, but a lot of folks are looking into our missionary efforts at Georgetown Primary. We have teachers, parents, folks in the community, government. It's important we show them that Sunrise Community Church loves God first by loving our neighbor. And I think if we come in right away and immediately start a Bible study, what is it, it kind of looks like we're just like a typical church trying to proselytize, right? The typical means. Well, we're here. What we're really here is to set up a Bible study with these kids. You know what I mean? Like, and while I agree, not just not doing a Bible study allows us to be comfortable, right? Indulge in the idol of comfort. Well, it's hard to do Bible study. We don't have to get into the religious stuff. Let's just not do that. But I actually believe doing one now, that's what God I felt was saying, doing one now actually lets us indulge in a potential idol. All right, so if you're a volunteer who goes there, just imagine this. Bible studies typically are led by, what, one or two persons. It's convenient then to do a Bible study than for each of us to be involved individually in living out and sharing the gospel with these kids. Living out 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to get the reason for the hope that you have. We're all called to do that. Right? And so sometimes just doing a Bible study kind of lets us off the hook. Didn't it? So I felt like God was saying was challenge yourself, Ryan, and us to talk to the kids ourselves because kids are going to ask, why are you here? Why are you doing this? You can answer, well, you know, we're from Sunrise Community Church, and I love my church, and we're doing this because Jesus helped me in my time in need. Right? What a great way to start sharing Christ with these kids. A third way. You see that? In a nutshell this morning, going to God for wisdom usually results in a third way, which not only provides an answer, but destroys potential idols. The third way is often the hardest when dealing with difficult things because it often brings the difficult, even the suffering. A few weeks ago, I was talking with a group of friends in back here. They were all couples without kids. And we, they were joking about how long each of the couples would take before they had children. Right? We were sort of betting, we were talking about how long it's going to be. And we were laughing about this. And, after a while, I dropped it down an octave, serious mode, you know. 
I said, seriously though, guys, having children really does help sanctify a person. Helps them become more like Christ. Because either you, when you have children, either you cling to Jesus or you go nuts. I don't know, that's just happening. Sometimes a little of both. But, you know, I'm a fool for Christ. Just a fool for you. So, uh, right? But you, you grow in becoming more like Christ because you have to cling and depend on Him. To which one of the gals replied, is that the only reason you got <laughs> for having kids? It was funny, but we do have to ask ourselves that. Because God's wisdom, the third way, will take us down paths where we have an opportunity to honor and cling to Jesus. But really cling to Him. And become more like him. Is that enough for you? Becoming more like Christ, like your Savior, is that enough for you? So quickly, back to Hannah. How do we know that her prayer was answered? We know it from two places. Read with me in verses 17 through 19. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your, in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate. Her face was no longer sad. Something has changed. Okay, verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Notice what happened here. Hannah, again, rose. There's that, that phrase. She worships the Lord before she bears a child. Her prayer, in a sense, has already been answered. Having clung to the Lord and being freed from those potential idols. Free from them. So, so God's first and greater answer to Hannah's prayer isn't then, as commonly thought, bearing a child. But it's avoiding the grip of idolatry and choosing a third way that allows her to delight in Him. Her countenance changes. She rises. She worships the Lord. But she hasn't had a child. Has she? Often, friends, we think of that external gift or act as an answer to prayer when the greater work, the greater answer is what God has done in us to have us revere, honor, and fear Him more. The other place is in chapter 2, Hannah's prayer that reflects a fear of God and a life that further honors Him. Just read a little bit of this with me. We'll turn to chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read a part of this. Hannah prayed and said, after all this goes down, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Basically, for ten verses, 21 times, Hannah specifically exalts God by name or by personal pronoun. 21 times in ten verses. Not that it matters how many times, but when the pattern is so obvious, it shows the author's purpose in including it here in the text. It's far less about her having this son, far more about Hannah becoming more God-word, more godly as a result. And we see it here in this prayer. We know that her prayer was answered because Hannah changed. Wisdom is proved right by her change. See that? In dealing with us, dealing with us people, human beings, God in His wisdom demonstrated a third way, literally choosing between mercy and justice. We close with this. 
Fiorello LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City during the worst days of the American Great Depression and all of World War II. He was a colorful, this guy was a colorful guy. All right, he rode the New York City fire trucks, he raided speakeasies with the uh, police, he took entire orphanages to baseball games, and he would, when the New York papers went on strike, he would actually get on the radio and read the Sunday comics to kids. All right, this guy was a zestful dude. I love it. But one cold night in January 1935, LaGuardia turned up at a night court that served the poorest ward of the city. He dismissed the judge for the evening, and he took the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him. She was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia, hey, you know, I did this because my daughter's husband had deserted her. My daughter is sick, and her children are starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen wouldn't drop the charges, saying it's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's got to be punished. I imagine being Irish. I don't know why. But she's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. Sorry. If you're Irish, I apologize. But she's got right. But she's got to be. She's got to be taught a, a, a lesson. Lagardia sighs and he, he turns to the woman and says, "I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. Ten dollars is a lot." But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket, walking down the stand as he extracted a bill, tossed it into his famous hat, saying, here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. On the one hand, God, no doubt, wanted to indulge in mercy and love and tenderness and acceptance towards us. On the other hand, though, he wanted, he needed to resolutely stick with justice, that we deserve punishment for rebelling against him. He needed to stay true to himself and to his law. So God chose a third way, which is the most wise act in human history, combining mercy and justice. He walked down from his throne in heaven, entered human history, and lived a perfect life to meet the law. And die the death we deserve to satisfy justice. So that those who trust in him can forever stand before the Father and ask for wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who, as First Corinthians calls him, is our wisdom. That this third way was demonstrated perfectly in our lives. This most glorious and wise way. Mercy and justice coming together. A third way. Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Praise him to give you thank you. Father, I pray similarly we wouldn't just stick with what we our gut feeling is always or just what you know I think off the cuff might be true, but help us seek you for true wisdom in difficult choices. Help us avoid idols so that we might choose what most honors you. And the benefit, the fruit of that is becoming more like you. Just an awesome experience, a tremendous blessing, now and forever. Amen.